Grab a Bible, open to Acts chapter 17. Josh Brewer, are you recording? You recording this sermon? Okay, good. Unfortunately, last week's talk, which was talk one of a four-week miniseries, didn't get recorded audibly, but we've put the transcript of that online. Each of these sort of talks builds on it because we're in uh, what we call our annual Better Conversation series. We think it's a part of what it means to be a gospel missionary in the city of Seattle, which is how we view ourselves as Christians, to have great conversation. But we also realize that that takes some work. It takes some real serious work. That's part of why we gather on Sundays. So that's part of the ethos of, of Sedaris, that we are a community that considers together and we consider deep truths. And so in this annual series, we always take a look at something that hopefully will make us better in conversation. Because to be honest, the conversational tone of our city is not very good. I, I don't find myself having the kinds of great conversations that I think as human beings, we're capable of having. So what if as, as followers of Jesus, we lead the way to bigger, better conversations? So we do an annual series every year. And this year's series is about how science and faith interact. How do you talk about science as a Christian? Now, this is a series that will help us think through the world through the lens of the gospel and the lens of Christian belief and worldview, Okay. So it is, unapologetically, a series primarily for Christians to gain the prerequisite language that we need to have better conversations about great concerns in our city, the things that people want and need to talk about. This is not a series, then, for those who may not yet be Christians. However, we think there is much to be gleaned as you interact with these ideas, and we hope, and we're so glad that you're here, we're overjoyed, in fact, if you're not yet a Christian and you're here considering these truths. That's why we exist as a church. One of the things we exist to do is to help people begin the conversation about who is Jesus and what is the Christian faith, and so we're so glad that you're here, but we hope that you'll be stirred, even though this is primarily for Christians learning how to have better conversations in the areas of faith and science. We do we do expect that you'll be stirred to consideration yourself. Uh, there was a biologist, Nobel Prize winning biologist, Peter Medawar, who famously said, and he'll come up later in my sermon again, um, and this quote popped out at me this week as I was studying, he said this, all experimentation is criticism. If an experiment does not hold out the possibility of causing one to revise one's views, it is hard to see why it should be done at all. Perhaps for you, if you're not yet a Christian, you are experimenting with the truths of Christianity, and so be open to what God might do through this time. Maybe you don't think there's a God, but be open to what might surprise you, maybe even your views of faith and Christianity and science might be revised by your experimentation. So we're so glad that you're here. So glad that you're here. And for those of us who are Christians, listen, you've already gotten up. You've already missed the Seahawks game. Sorry if you didn't know that. <laughs> you already have. And you're here, get the most out of it. Sit in the spirit. That's what we say as Christians. Sit in the spirit so that you might take away from this what God has for you. How do I talk about science? How do I talk about my Christian faith? How do they play together? Now, let me start by just saying this. I love science. Well, I'm fond of it. I'm trying to reserve the love language for 
my wife and my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, but I'm, fond, I'm really fond of science, and I was reminded of that again this week. I officiated a wedding on Friday up on Hurricane Ridge in the Olympic National Forest. You know, this is embarrassing. I'd never been there, and I've been on this earth for 37 years, most of those years living in the Seattle area. Never been to Hurricane Ridge. Beautiful. I'm driving up through the fog of the mountains, and you go from sea level to like over 5,000 feet, you drive up, and it's beautiful. And I just had the thought, in the midst of that, I just, I've got to listen to some Scottish Highland music, right? That's the, I was like, oh my gosh, but I didn't bring my tape player or my compact disc player with my Highlands. And I said, oh, what am I going to do? Well, I'll just look it up on Spotify. And I found a fantastic playlist of Scottish Highland music, and I blasted it in my car, driving up through the fog to Hurricane Ridge, and I'm listening to it, and I'm thinking to myself, one, look at the beauty of nature, and then I'm thinking, thank you, science, thank you. So let me just thank some of the people who made my experience of Hurricane Ridge and Scottish Highland music possible. I need to thank the chemists. I need to thank the physicists. I need to thank the mathematicians and the computer scientists. All of them were involved in creating this divine experience for me. And if you want some specifics, um, we need to thank Maxwell for formalizing the theory of electricity. We need to thank Carl Braun, who discovered directional antennas. We need to thank Eric Johnson, who, uh, dis, uh, who invented the capacit uh, capacitive touchscreen. We need to thank Nathan Baldwin, who invented headphones, and Einstein, of course, for the theory of relativity. Carl Heinz Brandenburg for the discovering and, and bringing to us the MP3. And then, of course, we all know we must thank Al Gore for inventing the internet. Um, without any of these people, we would not, me being myself <laughs> and my Scottish heritage, would not have had this experience driving up through the mountains. And I say all that to say faith and science work hand in hand. Actually, without science, we would not have as full of experience of God's world as we possibly could. And so even though we're a church about to talk about science, I need you to hear me say, we are pro-science. We are for science. We believe in science. We believe that it's a gift from God. And as I mentioned last week, and I'll just review these, some of our humble hopes for this series is that by the end, you might see clearly that science and Christianity the Christian faith are not at odds, but can be used together to increase the glorification of God and the good of others, which is our chief end as human beings. By the end of this series, we will hope that you will truly be less fearful when science comes up in conversation. This is not a series for the scientific amongst us, those who like to think about these things and talk about these things and study them, but it's for all of us. I am not a scientist. I got an accounting degree, I was a CPA, and then I went back to seminary to study to be a pastor. I have never taken a higher education class in the sciences. So I am not an expert on science, but I need to know how to talk about science. Because science is a part of our world, it's an important part of the world in our city, and so we shouldn't be fearful when it comes up. We should not shut down the conversation and move it to other places 
Because we believe, actually, that if you stick in conversation when science comes up, you will have a very good opportunity. An opportunity that you wouldn't have if science didn't come up. To talk about your faith in a God who created a reasonable world in which we can study and that God, this God wants you to study and do science and know more about him and that it is in this God and, of course, in his son, Jesus Christ, that we have our life. All creation was made through him and all things hold together in him and he is restoring all th things through his death and his resurrection. And so, actually, science is a great introduction topic to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the end, we hope that you believe that, that you'll stay engaged in these conversations with friends and family members and coworkers, and you will be able to do, uh, dialogue reverently about science. I said this all last week if you want to go read it in the blog. Thoughtfully about science, discerningly about science, and prophetically about science. I won't speak about all four of those again. That's from last week. Uh, but I do want to briefly address that first one, reverence. Notice that I did not say worship. You might have reverence for your pastor, reverend. At least one of you calls me Reverend Dave, which I appreciate. <laughs> or maybe you have reverence for a thought leader in the field that you work in. Or you have reverence for a politician or reverence for an idea. Uh, that's great. But this is not the same as worship. And the two errors of our age when it comes to science and the church have been this. Either we worship science over and above God or we war with science as if it were a fatal foe. Neither, I think, are the right response. Reverence for science and what it has accomplished and can accomplish is amazing. So by the end of this series, we hope that you see that and it increases your tendency to glorify God. In fact, last week what I said, and I think it, it bears repeating, is to fail to do science, I think, is to fail to miss the mark of what God has mandated for us to do as Christians, sorry, as humans. Do you know what missing the mark is? Sin. So to fail to do science very well might be sin because God has given us the task, and you see it right in Genesis chapter 2. He says, Adam, go name all the animals, which is the science of taxonomy. Classify them, put them into categories, study them, observe them, understand them, and put them into a system, which is language, so that we might have dominion over all that God has created and use it to further God's ends. That was the mandate. So we have to do science. And in fact, to be human is to do science. I, I, I can't stress this enough. You can't help but do science. I, I was reminded of, this, the, reminded of that this week with my son Grayson, four years old, and he is literally, systematically, in our backyard, running scientific experiments on our spiders. <laughs> we have a lot of them. And so he likes to run non-lethal experiments on them. And here's what he was doing. He was trying to figure out how the relationship between spiders and water worked. So there was a nice big spider, and he had a cup of water and many cups, and he would just pour it on the spider and see what the spider did. 
And he was taking notes. He was watching. Like, what if I do this? What if I do that? And he is systematically experimenting. He is doing science. And he is testing. He is testing, amongst other things, can spiders remain attached to their webs when contacted by water? Do spiders like swimming? And maybe most importantly, as we should all do in, in our scientific, he is testing a previously popularized scientific theory proposed by the song that we all know about the itsy bitsy spider. He's saying, is that true? Thank you, science, for testing the things that we just believe. He found out it was true. <laughs> uh, they did climb up the web again and again and again, and so he poured water on them again and again and again. And as science does, and we should be thankful for science, he shared his findings with every neighbor that was within earshot. He was you know, tweeting in the old sense of the word as screaming aloud what he was finding. He was doing good science because science is unavoidable. It is simply observing our world classifying our experience of it, and using it for powers of explanation and prediction. This is why we love science. This is why we should love science. It allows us to live more fully into the world in which we exist. So by the end of this series, I hope that you're truly less fearful, stick in a conversation of science, knowing that you are yourself a scientist. We all are from our earliest days. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it should be celebrated. Now, last week, we started to define what is a growing ism within our society. And it's been growing for quite some time, but in the last decade or so, it's really taken on new shape and new form. Again, I won't go through the whole thing, but it's the ism known as scientism. Um, here's a definition that we shared last week of what scientism is. Scientism is roughly the view that only science can provide us with knowledge or rational belief, that only science can tell us what exists, and that only science can effectively address our moral and existential questions. Now that last piece is really interesting. That's sort of the shift that's happened. Scientism is claiming that it can even explain not just the natural or physical world, but it can also explain the moral world, the ethical world. The questions that have historically been addressed by the humanities, by philosophy and theology, religion, etc. So basically, the notion of scientism is, and it's becoming more and more popular, is that it can answer everything, even the things that historically science never claimed that it could answer. So here is another quote from Steven Pinker. We shared a long passage from him last week. Again, you can read it on the blog, the whole uh, the whole passage from an article he wrote last week, but here's his conclusion. This humanism, form of, scientism is a form of humanism, which is inextricable from a scientific understanding of the world, is becoming the de facto morality of modern democracies, international organizations, and liberalizing religions, and its unfulfilled promises define the moral imperatives we face today. What he's saying is, we're winning the day, and eventually we'll be able to explain everything. So with this swelling optimism about what science can do, what it tells us is that we need to know what it teaches. Because even though you say, um, well, I don't know a lot of people who hold that high of a view of science, 
What we have to understand in the, in the way these ideas and isms flow in communities is that there are the prophets, and the prophets move the masses. And so everyone, I think, that's living in Seattle, Washington in 2019 has probably been affected by this rise in scientism, whether they know it or not. We have put a trust in science that historically has been a trust in God. So it begs the question, are the prophets of scientism correct? Can science really explain everything? Are there any limits at all to science? And if there are, can we identify those and perhaps even use those limits in a conversation a conversation like we're having here to maybe bring up the person of God, his ability to answer some of these questions that science fails to answer. And so you see, this is what we're looking at. Is it true that science can explain everything? If it's not, what can it not explain? And how might those things be avenues to express our trust in a creator God? whom we can know ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the project for today's talk. Got it? Let's pray and ask God to help us with this project. Father, help us with this project. Amen. Okay. <laughs> we need help. So are you with me in Acts 17? Are you with me? Here we go. By the way, we don't normally preach these topical types of sermon series. Typically, we're walking through books of the Bible, and we'll get back into that mode uh, after this mini-series, but we just think this stuff is that important that we need to just take a break once a year and learn how to talk about the things that our city is talking about in the ways that our city is talking about them. So Acts 17, starting in verse 16, I'm going to read to you an account of the early church uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul in particular, encountering very smart people in the Greek city of Athens. And I think it's going to teach something about how we interact with the very smart people of our city. Here we go. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because Paul was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Arab... Uh, Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time uh, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul is being brought to basically a group of thinking people, philosophers, uh, intellectual elites, so that he might present to them his new religious theory about the world. This is often called the account of Mars Hill. 
and you can go there in Athens and you can still see where this took place. Um, very famous place in antiquity. Verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of Mars Hill, Mars Hill, known as Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along, I observed objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, quote, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, Paul says, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, and he made for one man, every, or from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, quote, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. See Paul there? He's using their language. He's quoting from their philosophical history. Quote, another quote, for we are indeed his offspring, end quote. Paul continues, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from that thinking, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising this man, that's Jesus, from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, right? Because like everybody in antiquity just assumed people could be risen from the dead, right? No, that's not true. That was miraculous. <laughs> Even to these ancient people, some of them mocked Paul. <laughs> people don't come back to life. But, look at this, others said, we will hear you again about this, Paul. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Arapagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. The word of the Lord. So there is nothing that's all that unfamiliar that... Paul was going through here, and I'm, let me explain. In addition to the 12 main gods in, in Greek culture, and then in Roman culture after that, and there were innumerable lesser deities, but 12 main ones, the ancient Greeks also worshipped a deity they called the unknown god, Agnostos Theos. And in Athens, there was even a temple specifically dedicated to that god, and the Athenians would swear by this God in the name of the unknown God. And as I was thinking about this passage, this is a famous passage, as I was thinking about this, I thought to myself, there's nothing new under the sun. 
it seems to me that this same unknown God phenomenon that was happening in those scientific circles of thinking men back then is happening in the same scientific thinking circles of scientism in our day and age. Let me explain. There is a real honesty amongst those believers in scientism that they will say, yes, we cannot explain everything. But before you can typically get a word in, and I've watched many debates about this and read much on this, there is this consistent, yet, 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 this is how it goes. It seems to us that with enough time, and we allow science to continue on the trajectory it's currently at, what is now unknown to us will eventually become known. There's great optimism. And it seems to me that this is very akin to what happened in ancient Greece. They have built temples to the hypothesis that there is a God that they do not yet know of. There are answers to questions that this God potentially knows. We just don't know what that is yet, and so we will worship the unknown God. You see, our temples just look different now, but the hypothesis of science and scientism, I think, is the same. We cannot explain everything through that which we worship already, which is science. Therefore, we will create a kind of worship to the unknown science that we've yet to discover. We will cover our bases by just worshiping that unknown science. And one day, we will be able to give it a name. So for today, we are secure and confident that we are worshiping the right thing. If you remember last week, I showed a clip of Richard Dawkins, one of the prophets of scientism, and, and I showed his, the ethos of worship when he talks about science and what it can already explain and what it might explain and the beauty of that. Well, in another debate I was watching just this week, he really highlights this idea of the worship of unknown science. So I, I want to read it to you, and then we're going to just think critically about what he's saying. Here is Richard Dawkins in his own words. Listen closely. It was a supreme achievement of the human intellect to realize that there is a better explanation for these things, that these things can come about by purely natural causes. When science began, the aim to achieve it was there, answers to these bigger questions, but we did not know enough. But at the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century, even though we still don't know everything, what we do know is that we've achieved an enormous amount in the way of understanding. We now understand, listen to the language, essentially how life came into being. We know that we are all cousins of all the animals and plants. We know that we are all descended from a common ancestor that might have been, might have been something like bacteria, we know that processes by which, or we know the processes that uh, might have made that come about. We don't know the details, 
But essentially, we do know how it came about. There are still gaps in our understanding. We don't understand how the cosmos came into existence in the first place, but we are working on that. The scientific enterprise is an active seeking, an active seeking out of gaps in our knowledge that we might work to plug up that ignorance. But religion, religion teaches us to be satisfied with not really understanding. Every one of these difficult questions, science says, right, let's roll up our sleeves and work on it. Religion says, oh, God did it. Religion stultifies the impulse to understand. Now, this response was a response to the question in the debate, does religion actually um, teach us to be satisfied with not really understanding? Does religion teach us to be satisfied with not really understanding? Which was one of the major propositions of his uh, most famous book called The God Delusion that Richard Dawkins wrote. Think about that. Now think about what you just heard him say. Let me read back to you a few of the comments. We understand essentially it might have been something like we don't know the details, we don't really understand, we are working on that, there are gaps in our understanding, while at the same time saying that it's religion that teaches us to be satisfied with not really understanding. Perhaps it's Dawkins who might want to just take a step back, look in the mirror and ask the hard question. Who is really more satisfied with not understanding? How does such a smart man who has studied so much not see the apparent contradiction here or hypocrisy? How how could that be? I propose that it's not so dissimilar from the ancient Greeks, the masters of philosophy (laughs) who create a temple to the unknown God. In Acts 17, Paul addresses these highly intellectual, deep-thinking, most sophisticated culture of his day, and they, too, have created a way to cover up the gaps in their understanding, to become okay with the gaps, to create a catch-all type of God that allowed them to sleep at night and not address the inadequacies of the worldview. And I, th- I think, it, it's so interesting, I think Dawkins and, and other true believers in scientism are, are not that different. They are part of the most highly intellectual, deepest thinking, most sophisticated culture that has ever existed, and they, in a sense, worship the unknown God of unknown scientific discoveries that will come one day. And it too masks the inadequacy or limits of their worldview, a worldview that promises full understanding, but does leave us woefully short. And the sad thing for me is not, it's not necessarily that people think this way, because Dawkins and others are, they're fine with it. The sad thing is for those who follow their lead, 
who think because they don't know how much they don't know, who assume that when they say science can explain everything, that they have explained everything. You see, that, that's the person who I think of. That's the person that we should think of, who believe them when they say, even though they themselves acknowledge, and also we worship the unknown science that we will eventually give a name to. But most people don't know that. They just assume with the confidence that they speak that we have answered all the questions, and maybe I'm not smart enough to understand all the answers, but they're there. And the, answer, and the reality is they're just not. They're just not. So what are these things that science does fail to answer on its own merits? What are they? And I'll say they are of both um, a quantity, like, like there's just things that we haven't figured out about the natural world, and we actually might figure them out, and then there's a kind. There's a type of answer that they just cannot get to. And Peter uh, Medawar, who I mentioned earlier, a Nobel Prize winning biologist who, for his works in immuno uh, immunology, is regarded as the father of transplantation. My wife works on transplant and cardiac unit at Seattle Children's. They owe much of what they do to this man. And he, at the end of his life, wrote a book called The Limits of Science. And this is what he says, as a scientist, he has discovered. He says this, quote, The existence of a limit to science is, however, made clear by its inability to answer childlike elementary questions, having to do with first and last things, questions such as how did everything begin, what are we all here for, and what is the point of living? And then there is uh, a man that I read this week who wrote a book called The End of Science, subtitle, Facing the Limits of Knowledge in the Twilight of the Scientific Age. His name is John Horgan, and he was a journalist, and he interviewed all the leading scientists and compiled their responses and his own response to the conversations that he had in, uh, with them in this book. And uh, it's a very, uh, I haven't read it all, um, uh, but just in the introduction, there's a very interesting passage that talks about not just these kind of questions, the first and the last things that Medawar talks about, but that science itself is limiting itself. Here's what he says. Moreover, science itself as it advances, keeps imposing limits on its own power. Einstein's theory of special relativity prohibits the transmission of matter or even information at speeds faster than that of light. Quantum mechanics dictates that our knowledge of the micro-realm will always be uncertain. Chaos theory confirms that even without quantum uh, indeterminacy, many phenomena will be impossible to predict. Kurt Goodell's uh, incompleteness theorem denies us the possibility of constructing a complete, consistent mathematical description of reality. And evolutionary biology keeps reminding us that we are animals designed by natural selection, not for the discovery of deep truths of nature, but for breeding. I read that for the scientists amongst you. And he is saying that science itself what, what it's discovering is imposing limits even within the realm of understanding of nature. Again, most of that stuff beyond my pay grade, 
So I got some people you can talk to <laughs> about that stuff. Um, but it just goes to show from every angle we're identifying the limits, real limits of science. So if there are real limits, why are so many out there sure that they will overcome these limits one day? Why? Because, listen, you gotta be thinking, why? Why not just admit there's limits? Why not? What is gained or not gained by denying the limits? The alternative is a lack of control. We love the answers that science gives us because we can control them. The power of explanation and the power of prediction that science gives to us makes us feel like we are in control. And so to admit that there are limits to that control is frightening to some more than others. And every time we really think about the lack of answers or the limits of science, what happens is we realize the alternatives. We either say, listen, one day we'll figure it out. and We worship the unknown God of science. Or we say, maybe there is a God. He's a God that we don't get to control. You feel it? You feel the tension? Does this tension need to be there? I don't think so. Let me explain uh, to you more deeply how science and faith actually work together with a few analogies, okay? Hopefully these are things like handles you can grab onto and use in conversation. The first analogy is a cake analogy. Uh, imagine I brought to you a cake that my Aunt May had made. You see this cake? I don't have it, but imagine it. Beautiful cake. Great cake. And I give it to you, and I say, tell me everything you can tell me about this cake. You could take that cake to a laboratory, and you might be able to understand a lot about this cake. You might even be able to understand the psychological explanations, including the neurological pathways created by years of having that same pie at the same occasion every year with family and friends. That it might, through those new neurological pathways, create in me a skewed desire for and a biased reaction to that that's the best cake that's ever been made. You might be able to look at it and understand the particular molecular makeup of Aunt May's pie and, and tell me about it and even replicate it in a lab setting. But you know what science will never be able to tell you? You see, much knowledge can be gained. What will it never be able to tell you? I don't think it will ever be able to tell you why Aunt May made this pie that very first time that she made it. That, that understanding, that truth, can only be revealed to us by Aunt May herself. She must tell us why she made the pie that first time, instead of making carrot cake. Why not carrot cake, Aunt May? Why not Marionberry? You know I love Marionberry. Why pie and not cake generally? 
Why not your famous chocolate chip cookies? Those are fantastic. You see, only Aunt May can tell us a particular kind of knowledge. And that knowledge is very personal and not impersonal. Are you tracking with me? Does that make sense? And that's not to say that, man, amazing that we can take this pie and replicate it and maybe even create a great company selling Aunt May's pie because it is a great pie. A a second analogy that might just help us press this a little bit more in a similar way. Let me say to you that I think you should get to know Aunt May. Fantastic woman. How might science help you know her? Well, you'd be surprised at how much you could know about Aunt May through science alone. You could dig through the garbage outside that family reunion. You could find Aunt May's fork. You could take it back to the lab, run DNA analysis, and you could tell where she came from genetically in the world. Is she Scandinavian, Italian, Eastern European? Nobody quite knows with Aunt May. Where did she come from? She just kind of showed up. She doesn't look like everybody else, but you could tell me that. You could tell me her true hair color because everybody knows Aunt May dyes her hair. You could hack into her bank account and find out how she spends her money and what she truly values because of how she spends her money. You you could find out all of this. You might even be able to hack into her Facebook account and discover her social patterns and friendships, and you might even be able to predict how she's going to vote in the next election. And here's the question. Do you know Aunt May? Do you know her? And I think the honest person who really knows what I'm saying when I say, do you know Aunt May, will say, no. We know about Aunt May. We have the power to explain her past actions, predict her future actions, but we don't know her in the way that we all understand that word, no, when I say it out loud. You see what I'm saying? I, um, I was at a, like I said, Hurricane Ridge for a wedding, and uh, let me just show you this picture. This, I got there, uh, the, the, the bride and the groom got stuck behind a rock slide, so I got there like two hours before they did. On the left is, this is the view from where they got married um, when I first got there, <laughs> and this is the view when they actually got married, uh, which is unfortunate <laughs> at one level, but it led to a great... Uh, illustration that I used in my homily, and this is what I said, and I'll share it with you. When you get married, you think you know the person, but you don't know them. When you get married, you think you know them like the picture on the left, but you actually know them like the picture on the right. And I told them, every time you come back to this spot and you see it for what it really is, it will remind you that that day was just the beginning of a journey to know one another, not the end. And that's the excitement of marriage. That's the excitement of any relationship that you might know about them, but you still have so much to know. Marriage is profound because it is a removing of the fog through much time and energy spent living with one another, relating to one another, conversing with one another. And so here's my point. The only way you will know Aunt May is if Aunt May chooses to let you know her. You could never convince Aunt, sorry, 
You could even convince Aunt May to marry you and still not know Aunt May if she never chose to reveal herself to you. In the same way, science can help us understand a lot of important things, but there is a kind of knowledge that we know transcends the investigative techniques and processes of science. We know this, and we know that personal knowledge is a real thing, and personal knowledge always requires personal revelation. In Francis Schaeffer's book, The God Who Is There, he uses this illustration, just one more illustration of, a, of, of uh, two kinds of texts. He says, you find a tattered book, and it's a beautiful book, and it's full of information, and, but there's pieces torn out of it, lots of pieces. And, and so to one extent, you can read through the, the, the tattered nature of the book, and you can kind of understand what the book's all about. But then one day you're up in your attic and you find an old box and in the box are tons of torn pieces, fragments of text. And you think, wow, this is strange. I wonder where these came from. And at one level you're starting to get excited. That book that you love so much, maybe it's related there, but you suspend your excitement because you don't want to be let down. That almost seems too good to be true. And after hours upon hours upon days upon days upon weeks and weeks and years and years, you are able to piece together how this book and these fragments fit together. And then the story truly unfolds for you. And you see things in this story that only make sense now that the two have been put together. And he says, this is how science and scripture work. We can know much in the book of nature. But when we see the treasure of what we found in the attic, what many have put away and hidden and is, is collecting dust and moth, when we see that for what it is, the value, the key that unlocks it all, and we start to put the two together, we start to see a picture of God's world that is far greater than we could have ever imagined on our own. And it is, therefore, the scripture that helps us interpret the book of nature. And if we don't stubbornly refuse to allow these truths that we have found in the attic to inform and guide our conversation about the world we live in, its purposes and its meanings and its tents and its goals, then we can delve so much deeper into the wonders of life, the wonders of science, the wonders of conversation with our fellow man. The text of scripture and the text of nature will lead us down a path whose end is life-changing knowledge. Because we can know the one who constructed both. We can know the author of both books. We can know the author in a personal way. And it will be for us refreshing, life-giving water each and every day of our life if we allow it to be. I, ho I hope those illustrations are helpful to you. that you might answer confidently, not arrogantly, but yes, science has limits. It's fantastic, it's wonderful, but it does have its limits. 
it falls short of being a God worthy of worship. While we should still use it with reverence, we should just stop worshiping it and building temples to it and, and giving it the highest authority in our lives. These are things that should be reserved for the one true author of both. This is a good time again to pause and remind us that we care not about winning an argument here about can science explain everything, but we care about real people, average people, friends and families and coworkers of yours who are wrestling with this question, who are feeling real hopelessness because the claims of scientism and intellectual elites in our society have promised them something that does not lead to fulfillment. We should care about that person who lacks a sense of meaning in their life, who lacks an experience of real hope and real purpose and real movement in their life. We should care about the person who is wondering if life is even worth living anymore. And because we have found answers that work in tandem with what we've discovered in science, that have brought us life and joy and hope, not because we're smarter or wiser or special, but because we found it sitting up in the attic and we took the time to piece it together. It is our kindness and our compassion that must bring us into conversation about these truths that we have discovered. And as 1 Peter 3 says, we should always be ready at all times to give an account or the good reasons for the real hope that we possess. It is our responsibility to our fellow man to tell them that there's an equally valid and reasonable and rational option for discovering truth. That they indeed can know sensibly their place in the world we must explain to them the answers of nature and God's word working together and that God has given us those answers as a gift. And here's the rub. Here's the rub. Did you hear what I said? That God has given us those answers that science fails to give us as a gift. Here's the rub. If you listen, if you listen to debates and you read articles, this is the real rub and one of the main issues that people have with this idea of this two-text system. Scientific understanding provides us with what? A great sense of accomplishment. A great sense of achievement. Because you know what? We have worked hard. We have worked long hours. We have done much and sacrificed much so that we might earn this explanation, this power of prediction. We have earned it. And that feels good. But the revelation of Scripture works differently. We did not earn it. It was given to us as a gift. Human pride always gets in the way of God's gifts of grace. It's just what happens. By definition, they are not worked for. They are not earned. They are not given. They are certain answers to truths that we seek and desire that cannot be earned, that cannot be worked for, that cannot be validated by our own efforts. And that's the rub. 
They must be received, and they are available to all without price. That's grace. And foolishness to the Greeks. And foolishness to some scientists who don't want people who don't work hard and earn it to get it. This is the exact opposite of the gospel of grace. That you can do nothing to earn God's favor, that you can do nothing to earn eternal life, that you can do nothing to gain a better place in the standing before God. That all you can do is humbly bow your knee before Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, who gave his life for you as a ransom before you could even acknowledge that you needed a Savior. That's the gospel of grace. And you only accept that, not by blind faith, but by faith. So much more could be said. We don't have time to say it. So I'll leave you with that. Are you willing to accept the gifts of grace? Revealed to you, not earned. Given to you by your creator God, not worked for. Are you willing? Or is that for you just too hard of a pill to swallow? That all you've done is not enough to earn your own salvation. Let's pray. Father God, we know that you want us to just receive the gift that you've given to us. We know, we know that you want us to simply trust you even as we learn more about you through an engagement with the sciences. We, we know that this is all part of the way that you get to know us and we get to know you. But it's hard for us, God. We are a smart people an educated people. We have worked hard for our degrees and our positions and our power of prediction. It's hard to give that up. Help us today to see that we don't have to give any of that up, but we just get to receive something new, something better than the powers that science gives us, something truly lasting, something truly transcendent, something truly meaningful, which is a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ, who has died a death we should have died and raised to new life that we too can live into when we accept him with our eyes wide open by faith alone. We thank you for this gift. We pray that we do not spit on it. Jesus' name we pray. Amen.